You're listening to Vinyl Tap, Inside the Music Industry with Michael Parisi. Hi, my name is Michael Parisi. I've been a part of the music industry for over 30 years. I've worked in all facets of the business, from promotions, marketing, A&R and artist development. I've also worked for and with major record labels. I've run my own labels and my own music publishing company, and I'm still an artist manager today. So take a seat in the room with me as I talk with some of the biggest movers, shakers and visionaries of the music industry. There'll be lots of stories, insights and intel that you won't hear anywhere else. So sit back, relax and welcome to Vinyl Tap. She has been in the broadcasting and music journalism game for over 25 years. She started her radio career at 3RRR in Melbourne before moving on to Triple J and then on to London where she worked at both the BBC and the legendary XFM. On top of all of this, Jane Gazzo co-hosted the seminal and very popular live music TV show Recovery, as well as trying her hand on British music TV where she hosted a show called Play Loud. In the middle of all of that, she's even managed to be a personal assistant for the one and only Courtney Love, which we'll find out about shortly. Today, you'll still find Jane as the go-to authority on radio and on TV. You might see her pop up on shows like The Project, on 3 in Melbourne, and on ABC Radio nationally. She's still a staunch music fan today, and she loves Australian music. She also doesn't mind voicing her opinion on anything you can throw at her, like I tried today. So sit back, relax, and be prepared for a high energy and fun conversation with the lady herself, Miss Jane Gazzo. Okay, so here we here she is, Jane Gazzo. Jane! Hello, Michael. I've got a story for you. Tell me a about story. About how we met. I got to hear. You ready it. for this? Yeah. 1991, 92. Oh my god. Chase's nightclub, which was called on Wednesday nights, it was called Hard and Fast. I remember. I was a DJ. No way. And you were. A, I think you're probably underage. Probably. I'm not saying that in the, in the creepy way. Yeah. But you're underage, and you and your friend, and I forget her name now, would always come to the DJ booth and say, <laughs> "Can you play Nirvana? Can you play Smashing Pumpkins, Rhinoceros?" And I said, "It's too slow." But you always had a knack of finding out about acts before anyone else. <laughs> And I'd go, this girl, she used to drive me crazy, by the way. Oh, my You'd God. You'd come up all the time and knock on the door. Can I, can I come in and see what you're doing? And does, you remember that? You've got a vague memory. Absolutely nuts that you remember that yeah. because I don't. Really? <laughs> I remember you being were, at Chase's Hard and Fast. You were in there fact, every week. I saw the very first Melbourne performance of UMI at Chase's Hard and Fast. There you go. With Screen Feeder. Oh my God! I remember so what? Ninety two? Are we talking that far totally back? Totally ninety two. Because I was there from nineteen eighty nine. Actually, I, I caught the the end of the hairband days. So it was like Guns and Roses, Warrant, Rat, and then we went into Nirvana. You know, um, Chili Peppers that era. So what you, was your DJ name? Oh, are you ready for this? Yeah, Zodiac Black. Oh, you weren't Zodiac Mindwalk. No, but it was based on that. It was, it was Zodiac, and I thought, and I love black. I always wore black, so I thought, yeah, Zodiac Black. 
People still give me shit about that, by the way. <laughs> anyway, that's where we first met. That's a great story. And then from there, I just I, w- I moved to Sydney and then lost track of what you were doing. Mm. So what were you doing in the, in the early 90s? I was volunteering at Triple R radio station. Right. I started out on the graveyard shift, probably around the time I was annoying you. I think so too. <laughs> and I graduated from the graveyard shift and they gave me my own show on Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock and it was called Calamity with Jane. Yes. Because it kind of described the music I was playing. It was a mesh of indie stuff. And from there I got the coveted 4 p.m. slot on a Sunday afternoon. Right. And that's where I was heard by somebody from Triple J. And that's that's how how I got my start at Triple J. And Triple J Melbourne? Correct. And what were you doing at Triple J Melbourne? Were you initially? They just said, "Look, it was a time actually. What was going on at the time was Triple J were being accused by the Australian government of the time of being too Sydney centric. So they got the national rollout, and they had offices in every capital city and some very small regional areas within within the ABC offices." But they were being accused of being too Sydney-centric and I believe they were told to uh, raise the profile of their Melbourne office, by, i.e. by having more shows come out of Melbourne. Right. So initially I was contacted and asked if I'd do graveyard shifts, which I was more than happy to do. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I get paid to play CDs on the radio? This is nuts. Because Triple R was, of course, volunteering, right? Volunteer work, yeah. yeah. And I did it because I loved it. But then they were paying me to do these graveyard shifts. I thought, this is all right. And then from there, I think I did about four months of graveyard shifts and they would put me on fill shifts just to see how I fitted in. And they ended up giving me weekend breakfast, which after after regular breakfast, which was Helen and Mikey back then. Oh, of course. Uh, was the most listened to time slot. 10 a, it was 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. And I was there for about two years in that slot before doing the night's uh, the super nights, request. The yeah, super request. And in those days, it was Arnold Frollos who was the MD, right? He was the music director. I remember Arnold very oh, fondly. God bless Arnold. Yeah. Absolutely loved him. And you could play, you could play songs of your choice? In the- so how it worked is we got a playlist, but every hour – we got two choices yeah. of our own that we could play. And that's how I reckon half the bands that were were that broke out in the nineties. That's that's how they became big because I remember getting Eskimo Joe's sweater song and thinking it was the best song ever, playing that in my your choice shift. It would always be on the playlist, your, your choice, choice goes here. And I used to love that. I used to really think about what choices I was going to bring in that day. And just from playing the sweater song, that would get added to Triple J. There's a ton of stuff that got added just from simply us DJs playing them. Yeah, right. We'll talk about the impact of Triple J sure. back then versus now because I think it's a very interesting point um, to discuss. But then from Triple J, how did you – and then Recovery came along, right? Is that so – Recovery I'm was get, I'm in tandem. i the, the sequence right. So Triple R, Triple J, and then Recovery? So I was on Triple J – doing the weekend shifts at the time. So I think this is about 97. And Recovery was coming out of the Rip and Lee Studios mm. in Elstonwick. 
and initially they just wanted me to go on recovery to do a Triple J roundup, which was perfect because recovery was national and Triple J was national and they went hand in hand and I was in Melbourne. So it worked really well. I used to do a Triple J wrap up. So they'd give me let's say two minutes of airtime. This week on Triple J, we've got a live at the wireless from Sidewinder. Uh, also, Richard Kingsmill Talks interviews. To, yep, whoever. That was pretty much it. And I would come out of the Triple J studio, we'd do a live cross. And then they would begin asking me to come on the show to do various CD reviews, mm. stories, pre-recorded stories. So Dylan and I would go around to a lot of the regional schools around Victoria and we'd take a band with us. So, for instance, we took Violetine, who were then signed to Mushroom, Mushroom yep. to Kyabram, which is somewhere, something like an hour outside of Melbourne or something, to just to a regional high school. And we'd film it. The band would play, say, four songs. We'd bring the enforcer, the cameras. The enforcer. We'd, we'd film it and we'd play it on recovery. And we did that with a ton of bands. Uh, sometimes we flew to regional areas as well. And... Um, that was brilliant. The kids really got into it. I don't think people understand how influential a show like Recovery was in the 90s. It helped break artists. I remember being at Warner's and doing A&R and working with bands like Regurgitator and the Super Jesus. And to get Recovery was like, you know, it was a holy grail at the time. You know, did you, did you sense how important that show became or, or was? I sensed how important it was when every single touring band mm. – international touring band were on the show the big names we had because it i mean you've got to think about what outlets there were mm. at the time there wasn't a lot it was the perfect place for an international band to be seen and i have this friend at orgogo records uh, a great record shop that sadly no longer exists but he said you could time your watch bruce milne no, 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 a dear friend, Pat, who now runs another great record shop in the city, he said you could t time your watch to when recovery finished at 12 o'clock on Saturday and then literally within about two hours the shop would be packed with teenagers that had seen whatever band yep. – asking for the T-shirts of the band that were on. These are Australian bands, international bands, you name it, and basically buying the CDs and anything they had seen that morning. That morning he said yeah. wow. by Monday morning he would have to reorder. And he said what he loved about it was that that basically it didn't matter if, if the band was a, a little tiny Melbourne band that no one had heard of or a John Spencer or a Green Day. Basically, if it was in the shop, it would sell if it had been on recovery I remember that, that because when we did our marketing plans, we made sure that one, get Triple J, which was very, very influential at the time. If you got Triple J across the board rotation, which was like eight to nine plays a day, not a week, a day. So important. Right? And then you got recovery and then you did a gaslight in-store, literally an hour after recovery finished, and it was like, wow. The impact was like instant. It was mm. so amazing. Mm. You know, what was your favourite a memory of, of recovery in terms of one interview and two performance? I have fond memories of interviewing Sonic Youth because I was so nervous. Oh, yeah. So that was really nerve-wracking. And I didn't have a concept of time in those days because I know that the producer and the floor floor team know that they've got four minutes to get this interview away and I've got a million questions that I want to ask them. They were great. It was so 
that's just one of my favourite memories. And then about three years ago, I got to interview Thurston Moore. And Did he remember you? He remembered me. Oh, wow. He remembered the interview. It's on YouTube, thank goodness. And he actually spoke about that feel, that sense of camaraderie he felt knowing that, I mean, he didn't know me from a bar of soap, but the fact that we shared this moment on TV, which has been viewed on YouTube however many times, and the fact that we are still doing what we are both doing some 23 years wow. later. He, he felt some really... He said some really lovely words. I can't paraphrase him, but it was it was almost like it's comforting to know that you're still doing what you're doing. I'm still doing what we're doing, and look look how far we've come. We loved those bands back then. You know, whether it was you know um, Sonic Youth or Mud Honey or the Beastie Boys, they loved coming to Australia because we showed them so much t- you know, love and affection through shows like Recovery, mm. through Triple J. Yeah, you know, it's funny actually because when I was working at XFM in London. Uh, we'll which get was to a London. few years later after recovery. I, I remember meeting Alan Walmark, who at that point was managing Green Day. And I said, oh, I used to host a show called Recovery Australia. He said, I know exactly who you are. That show has followed Green Day around. <laughs> uh, we didn't have YouTube back then, but he said, oh, my goodness, I know exactly who you are. In fact, being one of the co-hosts of Recovery opened so many doors for me overseas because that show was regarded with such fond affection from all Do you want the international really bands scary? that oh, appeared Do you want it. something really scary? I was with Green Day that day because I was in charge of artist development at Warner's and can I you, brought them in. Can you please oh my God. talk me through that whole Green Day scenario from your perspective? Because I have mine. What's, I want to match what, stories. What, what, what's, what's yours? What do you think they were, what do you think they were on? <laughs> Green Day. Think okay. about it. So you're just, telling me they, they had some. They, they had were some rat doobies. bags. They were rat bags. Of course they, they were. were. They did cause trouble. I mean, you know, like I want cognac, and then they'd all want cognac. One would say, "I want a, I want a cigar," and then they all want a cigar. They drove us mental. They were like little kids in the candy store. Wow. You know, and they were just they were taking the piss, but having you know, but serious about their art nonetheless. So I, the way I. The way I saw it unfold yeah. and speaking to so many people years after the fact was that they were unhappy that they were only coming on to do an interview. I don't know who's, I don't know if that was your, your department's fault. No, it was probably, yeah, it probably was actually, come to think of it. <laughs> Why would you get them on just for an interview? I, 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 think, I, I think it was a guy called Bo Martin who was head of promotions and I think there was something to do with having to be somewhere else straight after, but I, that's what I recall. But anyway... So they were unhappy that they were just talking. There's a house band. They were called Star Sign. I can even remember that. Star Sign, my God. And Star Sign is standing there because they're the house band and Green Day are going, this is ludicrous. We're on a musical television show and we're not even playing music. So I loved that anarchy that they brought with them because we were live TV and that is the beauty of live TV, that anything can and probably will happen. And the fact that they yanked the instruments out of star sign's hand and began playing but what really let it down for me was the fact that they were just f-bombing the entire time or the whole time so maybe it was planned jane maybe it was planned but that almost got recovery pulled off the air is that right is that right oh my goodness i don't recall that bit my executive producer bruce kane tells me this story that he was receiving phone calls from middle management abc 
saying, get this filth off right now. You are in a lot of trouble on Monday morning. Basically, Paul Clark and Bruce Kane had to front up to the ABC on Monday morning and talk through what had happened and plead for ABC not to take recovery off. And that was the thing. We were really... We were really the thorn in the side of ABC management at the time because they didn't get music, they didn't understand it and I don't think they realised the impact that recovery was having, especially in regional towns. I mean, if you think about it, the rollout of Triple J connecting audiences to, you know, some kid in Bunbury to to some kid in Brisbane, that was incredible and the fact that we could make household names out of Australian artists and internationals for that fact. But the fact that recovery was also now showcasing what these bands look like and bringing youth culture to their televisions. But we were really the thorn in their side. You were, but uh, at the same time, they did have Countdown, right? Countdown had finished by that I, point. I knew that, but Countdown did pave the way for music television sure. you know, to the homes of, you know. We had all the Countdown ex-staffers yeah. working on Recovery. Yeah, but this Recovery was a bit different. Countdown you know, pretty much catered to the mainstream, though they did have the odd oddball on like I remember uh, Molly Nicky Pop which was classic but recovery was something else it was a whole it was about new music it was Mm. about a time when alternative music became mainstream and as kids you know growing up in that scene we're like finally people understand what we like and what Mm. we're about and it was a movement it was a tribe you know and we called it a youth culture show because we aimed to bring stories from those regional towns and meet interesting kids collecting Erases, or the kid that That's the right. kid could that knew the the charts from 1990 to 1995 backwards, crazy things so like good. that. So good. And then from ABC Triple J Recovery UK, is that the next yeah, in the sequence? It was a really step? bizarre sequence of events that got me to the UK, and basically end of '98, ABC management said something along the lines of. We're going to rent out the Glen, the, the Elstonwick Studios. Right. Because they realised they could get more money renting out that studio that Recovery came out of every Saturday morning For to what? a Christian church group. Oh, really? Than, than having us there with a live audience and bands every Saturday. And what, they should a Christian TV show in that studio space? Yeah, it wasn't going on ABC, right. but they were using the studio to record whatever TV show that was going out somewhere else. I couldn't tell you any more than that. That's weird. It was odd. Mm. And it was suggested that recovery should come out of a house somewhere without the the live audience and without bands playing live. And I remember scratching my head and thinking... (sighs) What is going on? This is not going to work. I think I realised that was probably the point that I should bail. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Where's um, the door? And also my workload at Triple J had almost become crippling. I wasn't coping. Why's that? I was in my early 20s and the stuff that was demanded of me being almost – I think it's fair to say I was the poster child of Triple J well, at yeah, that course, point. Yeah, at that time, yeah. I wouldn't be speaking out of turn by saying that. And I had the, because I had the television profile and I was doing, by this stage, super request, good nights, five nights a week. But there, I, 
I was being pulled in every direction. ABC TV wanted me to do little vignettes whereby we would go to, say, South Melbourne Market and talk about some of the things coming up on ABC TV this week. Things like that. I would be asked to appear on ABC local radio to give the youth culture vulture vibe. Yeah, sure. I was basically, I was working nonstop. So you burnt out, you're saying? Oh, my goodness, did I burn out, Michael. It was Mm. crazy and I didn't think to ask for help or say, hey, I'm drowning here, I can't deal with this. And so it got my, it got so bad. There were times I remember sitting in the Triple J boardroom one day in Melbourne, crying, not wanting to go on on wow. air. So you got anxiety because of it. I I I had a nervous breakdown. I had a nervous. You'd be the breakdown. last person I I would think could be... not hold it together. Michael. Really, could not hold it together. It was draining. I dare say, I'm thinking back on it. If there had have been social media. At that point, oh my God. I think it would have killed me. I really do. Because people would have seen, you know, there's nothing wrong with you know having that, you know, those kinds of moments in the career. You know, we've oh, all, we've all we all have them. Yeah. We just go enough already. You know, yeah. like everything just you know. It was too much. Yeah, too much. It was too much. Was it was it the pressure of of being um, not just working, of course, because you know what long hours can do that to you. Mm. But was the pressure of being a spokesperson for, for this so-called youth movement? That- there was pressure being the spokesperson. There was so much writing on me saying yes to everything. I felt I couldn't say no. I didn't know how to say no. Yeah. And I also wanted to appear professional. There was something in me that said, oh, if I say no, they're going to hate me. They're never going to ask me to work again. Right. And so – and – also, just not eating correctly, things yeah, like that, yeah, yeah. and and no one actually saying, "Hey, do you need a hand? Can I can I make your work life easier?" I didn't know how to ask for help, and that's that's just youth. That's the naivety of youth. Yeah, and also mental health wouldn't have been such a big issue back then because it was like toughen up or get out, right? I felt I had to be really yeah, tough, and I yeah. had to be always on, always yeah. performing, always on, always nice. Um, and I remember the papers were writing really horrible things at the time about recovery and me and Dylan. Really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't recall that. Maybe because I was in the Sydney that bubble at that point. People either loved recovery or they hated it. Oh. Nowadays, people look back at recovery with fond affection, but they were, there were so many journos. I could name one journo that was always putting Go the on. boot in. No, Go I'm not on. going to name that person. No. Are They're they still, still, around, are they still today. around? Okay. But always putting the boot in. It was like we couldn't do anything right. You know what I mean? They're always ready to take a, a cheap shot. Maybe because it became popular and became... It was popular. Yeah, and yeah. anything that became popular in the 90s was brought down. Well, it's Australia, isn't it? It's too big. Of course we're going to cut you down. Yeah. And so did you have a break and then go to the UK because I, of that? I had a nervous breakdown. Wow. I remember I didn't know this, December Jane. 1998. I had no idea. I can talk about it now, Michael. Yeah, it's great. It's, no, I can talk, talk about, about it. it now. So many years have passed. And I spent the first six months of 1999 wondering what the hell I'd done, <laughs> regretting what, my decision And going, what am I going to do with my life? And what am thing? I going to do with my life? So come about three or four months into my self-imposed exile and I wasn't working. I had to move in back with my dad because I couldn't pay the rent in my flat in Richmond. Your dad. I used to sell suits to your dad. Isn't this funny? Yes. My dad always told me about your dad. Yes. They, yes. Know, they knew each other. Yes. And he used, to, he used to come and buy suits from my uncle who had a shop on, still has a shop on Smith Street in Collingwood. I remember anyway. dad had the bags to your father's yes. shop. Yes, yes. 
Yes. Yes. Well, it was my uncle, not my father. Okay. But my father used to always be there too. So right. they, they all knew each other. They used to knock around. But we digress, Jane. Yes. Let's get back on track. Yes. We can talk about suits and gangsters later. <laughs> um, so I had to yeah. move back in with my dad and I had to work out what I was doing next. And I just felt that my skills or talents weren't wanted anywhere. I had an agent, but we couldn't get any work. It was like the doors became shut for me. here in Australia at that time and I was gutted. I was heartbroken and I had to really take stock of what I was going to do and I remember ringing up a certain person at Triple J saying, okay, I've had my four months, I'm ready to come back and he just laughed at me. No. He laughed at me. Disowned? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely. The door was firmly shut. I remember people didn't understand why I was taking a break. There were a lot of record companies ringing me up. And really, you know, I remember, I remember um, Paula uh, uh, Jones, Jonesy, oh, yeah, Jonesy, just sending me the most beautiful card. She's gotten something for Kate, Jebediah, and a lot of the Murmur bands to sign this beautiful card. And they just didn't understand why I was leaving. And I just, I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore at this rate. Um, and they were so grateful for everything, you know, I, yeah, I treasure I treasure those people and those a lot of people reached out and said, Is everything okay? And I said, I'm not I'm not good. Um but yes, that door was firmly shut. Yeah, that's amazing. And that led you to And I had to go, Okay What am I doing with my life? Exactly. And I just went, I Okay, I love British music. British music is what probably got me to where I am today. I'm going to go over to London. I didn't know what I was doing. Where I was going. Did you know anyone in London? Funnily enough, when Swerve Driver played Recovery, Mm. I met their manager and he told me about this new station called XFM. And he said, look, it's a couple of Radio 1 DJs that have got together with a couple of record company people. They've started their own station. It's just been bought by Capital Radio. And that was their version of Triple J for one of a better example, right? It was their version of Triple J with adverts. That's right. And it had big corporate money behind it. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, this sounds amazing. It kind of felt like Nova when Nova first started. Remember Nova? Yes, but cooler. Much cooler than Much Nova. Much cooler. Yeah, but adverts nonetheless. Adverts, but cool They'll DJs. They'll play cool music, right? And cool indie yeah. music. Yeah. I just went, I need, to, I need to work there. I need to go over there. Well, that sounds like a dream job, you know. Yeah. Like a first station that, you know, it's going to pay you because obviously they've got the budget, yeah. pay you to play cool music. Yeah. That's a dream job. Yeah. Play it properly, right? Yeah. yeah. And then? So I took a box of records and a suitcase. Wow. And just a whole heap of nouse. <laughs> and just winged it, right? Do you remember where you, where you, where you stayed or where you moved to? Well, I, on- I, had, I had a friend that I'd met in 94 because I, I had done one, one trip to, to the UK in 94 when I'd finished my, my degree. And I went over there and I met this wonderful, wonderful – chap called Sean who worked at Mute Records and email had only just begun oh, in that email email, <laughs> email just God. started I remember emailing him saying I'm coming over to London he said there's a there's a spare room for you and I thought I'll be all right because he works at Mute Records so that's yeah. going to be fine was it like a futon and a can of baked beans pretty much <laughs> in Kensal Rise yeah. in London and I had to work out how I was going to get to XFM and I remember ringing them and they said, no, there's no, no, 
no jobs for you here. See you later. You know, it's just, yeah. who are you? Yeah. Do you know anyone? No. no. Okay. This is going to be really tough. So what I did was I signed up to every music temping agency. See that? They had music temping agencies. Wow. So basically you would – I signed up. I'd never typed in my life. I'd never worked at a record company in my life because mm. my whole life was broadcasting. Yeah. And I'm, I – basically got farmed out to say Virgin Records needed a receptionist for three days because their jet, their regular one had, was away. So right. I would sit on the desk at Virgin yeah, Records. Right. So temping. I, ended, temping. I was temping. Yeah, yeah. great. But you, you get put into entertainment companies. Yeah. So I did Virgin. Wow. I worked in the TV promotions for, for Virgin back when Emma Bunting from Spice Girls, oh Baby Spice, gosh. was promoing her single and just watching how big the newspapers were because Emma Bunting – was going against Jerry Halliwell for her single and the way they were strategically planning how they were going to get column inches for Emma because Jerry Halliwell was taking all the column inches. Culture Club had come out with a brand new single. I was such a huge Culture Club fan. So meeting Roy Hay from the group in the Virgin TV department was mind-blowing. So just watching all the mechanics. And making contacts, I imagine. And knowing knowing contacts. you, Jane, you would have been going, I need to know that person, that person and that person. I know you. You would have made heaps of contacts very quickly. Yeah, who are still friends yeah. to this day. Good. So somehow, I can't remember how, but I think I annoyed the head guy at XFM so much and he knew about Triple J because he was Australian himself. But it was a call to Suggs from Madness that got me in the door. Really? So Why Suggs, Madness? Okay, so Suggs was hosting a show on XFM. It was the morning show after breakfast for, let's say, 10 till, 10 till 12 on yeah. XFM. Yeah. I had had Suggs on my Triple J show three years earlier. And he knew you. He remembered you. He rem- I rang him up because you could ring DJs up in the studio. They had a studio line. And they'll give it out, hey, any requests or any shout-outs, give us a call. So I rang Suggs and I said, mate, don't know if you remember me, (laughs) but you you came, I interviewed you on my Triple J show uh, when you were touring, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, I remember. I remember you. I mean, I had plats and clips. I mean, how can you forget me? Do you know what I mean? I remember. Calamity Jane, I think I used to. Calamity Jane. So. Outlandish. (laughs) Outlandish fashion. Very colourful, I'll say that. television. I'll say that, very colourful. He remembered me and if he didn't, God bless him, he humoured me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I said, look, I'm just trying to get in to see Andrew at at XFM. Can you get me in? Seriously, Michael, within about an hour I got a call from Andrew Phillips at XFM saying, come on in, let's chat. And you you got the gig, I I imagine. Graveyard shifts. Graveyard again. shifts starting the, that, again. Those beautiful graveyard shifts. They but, are the making but of. But this me. time you're in London. <laughs> I'm in London. And, and they would pay for cabs from, yeah, right. from home to the studio in Leicester Square. Wow. Right in the heart of London and back home again. And it was wonderful. I had taxi drivers calling me. I had bakers, uh, insomniacs, students. It was a whole new it was world. Great, but great, but in London. That in would have London. been so exciting for you. Live and, and loud you, from Leicester And then did you Square. feel like, okay, so this could go somewhere now. It really did feel like yeah. it could go somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And it did. I ended up doing weekend breakfast. Wow, on, on XFM. On XFM, which was 6 till 10, Saturday and Sunday mornings. And just for context for the people who don't know how influential or how important that was at the time, it was the antithesis of, of – 
Radio 1, wasn't it, in, in a sense? Yeah, it was the antithesis of Radio 1 uh, and it was, well, case in point, Christian O'Connell, who now does Gold Breakfast here in Melbourne, was the breakfast presenter on XFM. Is that right? Yeah, but it had such a loyal listenership because the yeah. music we played wasn't like what Radio 1 were playing. It was stuff like Stereophonics, Elbow, Muse, yeah, yeah, I remember because Klaxons. we had we got Motor Race and um, George played on XFM. Yeah, and Motor Race did quite well in the UK, even though they were kind of at the time they were you know that had comparisons to everyone from Oasis to 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 Muse, but um, XFM was really important. So for, important uh, for Australian bands going in as well. Yeah, the only problem was mm. there was already another Antipodean on the air. His name was Zane Lowe. Of course. So he was from New Zealand. Yep. And I was obviously from Australia and there was a little bit of a tussle because we were a London station and there's two Antipodeans on the air. Yeah. And management weren't quite so comfortable with that. Is that right? It's true. And of course, Zane Lowe now is Mr. Apple. Mr. Apple. Yes. I, I mean, I his listen career to his, is I listen glittering. to his podcast every day or yeah. every morning. Oh, yeah. He's yeah. a great interviewer. Really great. Brilliant. Absolutely And he was, at, he was at Radio 1 for such a long time. He was at Radio 1, but prior to that, he was, he was at XFM. XFM. That's where he got his start. That's where he got his yeah. start. So so he was doing far more coveted shifts than I was. I, you know, I was weekend breakfast, which was great. I think it got to a point where it was it, – Something was mentioned that there's so many Antipodeans in the building because not only was the station manager Australian, but the receptionist was as well, oh. Sharon Kent, who is still a friend to this day. There were so many Aussies. There were so many of us. It was great. And then a job came up at Capital Radio, the parent company of XFM, which was a far more larger listenership and the pop station. And was that it was regionally based, Capital? No, was no, it? no. It was no. London's number one radio station. So it was like, let's call it Kiss FM in London, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Kiss or Fox FM. Huge audience. Uh, TV personalities hosted shows like Chris Tarrant, for example. Right. Dr. Fox. Um, They they wanted a rock show on Saturday nights and they auditioned me and I got the gig. So those years of hard and fast came in handy. Those years of hard and fast were so, (laughs) so... Yeah. Warranted, <laughs> <laughs> and so and then you went to uh, BBC Six, correct? Yeah. So from I there. did. I from, did from Capital. Did, did you go Capital, XFM Capital BBC? Yeah. So I did Capital for for ages, and then then they decided they didn't want a rock show. With new management came new decision. Mm. We actually don't want a rock show on Saturday nights. Rock's dead. Rock, it's rock, all about rock pop. was dead definitely by that point. Yeah. I ended up doing the chart show and some other show, and it just. It was just all kinds of wrong. It was beige. So then the contacts I'd made at XFM had started that this new digital station called BBC Six Music and one of the guys working there was the former Melody Maker editor and him and I got along brilliantly and he called me over and he said, look, we've got music news every hour on the hour after the regular news, the BBC news. They had this one minute of music news on this new station, new digital station that they were rolling out right throughout the United Kingdom. And they said, look, we need music journos. Come and work with us. And I love Mark Sutherland. So I just went, yep, I'm there. And I started at Six Music. And I started started on the music news desk. So we were, we were looking for stories and scouring websites, 
talking to bands about new releases, cutting up audio from interviews that DJs had done and making up all the music news. Right. Can you believe that? That was an actual... A thing. A thing. Yeah, 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 I can. But Radio 6 is kind of um, renowned for not so much being at the forefront of, of new cutting-edge music, but it was, you know, it was a funnel for great music, wasn't it? So good. It was really a good. funnel for new music and people like Tony Wilson from Factory yeah. Records, Tom Robinson, the artist, um, we had... We had um, so many household names. Richard Jobson from the Skids presented for a while. I remember there were members of all my favourite bands came in. They just loved the station. If you wanted to hear something that wasn't, you know, on on Radio 1 or or Poppy, you'd Mm. go to to 6, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And how long were you there for at 6? Four years. That's Four years is a long time in radio, isn't it? Four years is a long time. And now tell me, I need to know, your worst ever interview or experience on the radio oh i don't care which station and why and then on the flip side of course i'd love to know who i know we spoke about thurston moore from sonic youth earlier on recovery but who was the best interview ever on radio best ever best interview and on worst radio. i've got to i've got to know because you would have spoken Michael, to quite a few people, so Jane. Many. You would have spoken to so a lot many. of people. But there's sort of one that you go, I'll never, ever forget that interview for the wrong reasons and the right reasons. In radio, I can't honestly remember because I've spoken to so that many, many people. Sure there's, one where you, sure, there's one where you go, wow, that was like life-changing. That changed my life. Oh, did an interview change my life, Michael? Yeah, did it. Did an interview change my yeah, life? Yeah, did it. Did, did you go, that was, I, I, can't, I can't do better than that interview. Sure, there's got to be one. See, I'm my worst critic when it comes to right. interviewing because interviewing for me is an art form. And Are you saying I'm shit? You're shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually really comfortable being interviewed. I would much rather be you in your seat. love it. You love it. You're a natural. Get, keep going. I make more sense on paper. On You're, making word than sense. I do, You're making perfect sense. You're making perfect sense now. But I don't. I'm always trying to get better, and that's one thing I did when I was at Triple R. Is I would listen to every show that I did, and work out how I could do better. I would self critique. Yeah the shit out of my work mm. because that was the only way I was going to get better and no one else was going to tell me. No one's going to I do hate mediocrity. You. I really hate mediocrity. You hate that near enough's good enough. Oh, she'll be right, it's mate. It's not good enough. Yeah, she'll it's be right. Not. But that's the entire Australian attitude. It is. It, is. it really Very is. Much so. We've traded on mediocrity. Mm. And when you've worked in in internationally and you come back here and the standard is not it's as different, high. different, isn't it? Yeah. And people think that you're a freaking asshole or a diva for wanting to do better. Yeah. Different mentality, and even the states, for that matter. You go to the states, and you know they don't accept mediocrity, and oh and then they celebrate success. You know, unlike we celebrate mediocrity here. We do, we do, because it's it's good enough. Near enough's good enough. Oh Always has gosh. been. From from you know, in my time in the music business, even right now, I, I mean, don't 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 set me off because I'll talk for hours about it. But we we do celebrate that, or well, not celebrate, but we have this this mentality which drives me mental. Of oh yeah, that'll do. Mm. Well, no, it won't do. Mm. It could be better. Change it. Was it was so hard strive, for me. Strive for something greater. You know? To come back from England, I worked at Foxtel after I got back from England after eight years of being there and seeing the way that people did things here on whether watching television, whether listening to the radio, I would just pop cringe. my head in my hands and cringe 
and I so didn't want to be like that. So I would sometimes refuse to do things that way because they weren't good enough. Yeah. And then I was accused of being too difficult to work with, which and is horrible you would, to Yeah, and you have to bite rough. your tongue in those situations, right? And it's so hard for yeah. me to bite my tongue. <laughs> now, listen, you've dodged the question. You've What's dodged that? the question. Worst interview and best interview. You've got to have one. One or the other then, if you can't think of both. Worst interview. Or best interview. One or the other because I'm putting you on the spot Worst here. Worst interview or best interview. See, the best interviews I've done are with legacy artists because Great. they're at the stage of their career where they don't give a shit anymore. They're not trying to and hide. And they'll say what they want to say. And they'll say what they want to say yeah. and they don't care. They don't care, yeah. They're so open to being themselves. Whereas you, if you get emerging artists that are still trying to find out who they are or what, what they are or you get artists at that level – for me, legacy artists are the best. The ones, that, the ones that are in their sixties, seventies, and are comfortable in their own skin oh, and don't need to prove anything to anyone. Right? And can tell the stories yeah. now because so much time has yeah. passed. I found that too when I was um, doing artist development at Warner's, and they'd sometimes throw me into the promotions shifts. And say, for example, Ray Manzarek from The Doors came out. They'd go, "You'd love this. Do you want to go and hang out with him?" Of course. Ray Manzarek was a dream because he'd mm-hmm. sit there, he'd sit there and listen to stories and there'd be no, you know, there was no pretense. He'd call it like he saw it, you know, and then you'd hang out with the, another artist, say, a third eye blind came out, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I had to look after them for some stupid reason. <laughs> and that the lead singer, whose name escapes me now, was a yeah. complete fucking arsehole but thought he was the biggest, you know, the biggest actor in the world. I, it's just to drive me crazy. So I would always say if they needed me to like look after an artist, I won't look after anyone under 30. Yeah. It's got to be about 30 because yeah. it, was, it wasn't worth my while. Mm, mm. Anyway, so you're not going to tell me who your worst interview ever was then? I don't know if I have a worst ever interview, although people enjoy reminding me about the Dandy Warholts on recovery because Ooh, they had had no one. sleep and they came onto the show and – they just weren't present. They're they probably really on weren't shrooms, present. I imagine, those guys. They had been up all night. I don't think they'd been to bed. Yeah. I don't think being interviewed by me first thing in the morning was really on their radar. And I remember receiving so much shit for that interview. But it was them. It wasn't me. Yeah, of course. It was just off, them. Off their head. Not, and, and, and perhaps me being so young and not having the skills to deal with mm. four people that just didn't want to be didn't there. Didn't want to be there, yeah. Um, but the really great postscript to that story is because that, that – that uh, it was like I had a sign on my forehead saying, "Yes, I did the Dandy Warhols interview on recovery." <laughs> but when I met them in London again, I met them in London, and they were so sorry about that moment. They was just like, "We were so sorry. We were off our face. Oh, hi, we yeah. gave you so much shit on that interview." Um, and you know, they bought me dinner and they wow. put me on the door for their show and. Brent now lives in Melbourne, the drummer from the Dandy Warhols. I, I, I see I him saw, often. I see Brent all the time. Yeah, yeah. So, so we've we've gone past that. But that was tough going. Not having the skills and being young was yeah. tough. But worst interview. It's so it's, it's probably a tough one. But let me throw this at you because I, I read this somewhere. I don't know the full story, but tell me about Courtney Love. Okay. Speaking of crazy people, she threw a bottle of beer at me once. Why? Because I was trying to get Al Jorgensen from Ministry out of a trailer yeah. backstage at Big Day Out because I had MTV Japan trying to interview him and I was in charge of Ministry. That was another story. And uh, I knocked on her trailer knowing he was in there and she goes, go away. And I said, I need Al for 10 minutes. You know, She goes, no. And I, I locked the door. 
And I said to the guys from MTV, I said, look, just give me another 10 minutes because he's in there obviously doing what they shouldn't be doing. Think about it. Courtney Love, Mark Lanigan and, uh, and Al Jorgensen. Anyway, 10 minutes later, I knock again and I, and I just thought, fuck this, I'm going to open the door and all of a sudden this bottle of beer came just hurtling towards me and I ducked and it smashed against the, um, the trailer door. Oh, my goodness. And she goes, get the fuck out. And I was like, fuck me. And this is oh. when Courtney was like, out of her mind, you know. Yeah. Anyway, but the, you've got a story about her, haven't you? Well, I actually worked for her. Yeah, tell me. Alan McGee. Tell me. Who ran Creation Records, signed Oasis. And the D4, by the way, New Zealand band. Wow, mm. he did, didn't he? Who were on, yeah. who were on Festival of Mushroom, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'd gone up to Alan because I was just bolshy back then and said I was looking for work and he laughed. And he said, right. So I just moved over from Australia. I'm looking for a job. If you've got any, Alan, I'd love to work for you. But if there's no other jobs, just let me know if something comes up. Mm. Well, sure enough, he remembered me, didn't he? Wow. <laughs> Do you really? I know where this is going. Was he going out with her, or just, I don't or just, think or just, or just, or just was no. he looking after her? No. What was happening was oh, I'm just trying to piece it she together. She was wanting to release her record "America's Sweetheart" with Alan on his label, right? So he was working with her. Okay, that makes sense now. And he rings me at home, and in his thick Scottish, in, Lon- in London, yeah, yep, in his thick Scottish accent, he says, "Jane." You know how you said you want some work? I said, yeah, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, I've got something for you. Courtney Love needs a PA. Oh, <laughs> wow. Now, I'm Courtney in my early Love 20s. needs a PA. I'm I, in my early 20s, Michael. I've never PA'd for anybody in my life. I wouldn't know the first thing about But PA. you're a fan of Courtney, right? Of course. Of course you are. Yeah. Yeah, you would have been, I reckon. And I was going to get paid. Yeah, to look after Courtney Love. To look after Courtney Love. I would have asked for danger money, double pay. <laughs> I wish I had have asked for danger money. I would yeah. have. Ne- I needed it. Yeah. Was she was she as crazy as she, as she appeared to be through the media? No, absolutely not. Yeah, no, I didn't quite think the opposite. Was, really, she wasn't. No, she was not crazy. Um, it was it was crazy for me taking on a job of that proportion, being so inexperienced and only having been in London, I think, under a year. And I mean, she wanted things that I just did not know where to find or how to find them. So really relied on my very limited network at that point like what? to help what are we, me out. What are we talking about? Like so, pink M&Ms? No. She wanted hair and makeup. She wanted her nails done. Just regular things that a celebrity yeah, of right. that Hollywood stature at that point in time yeah, yeah. would be after. And oh, I didn't know the first place. <laughs> what a things. job. What a it's job, just, looking after Courtney Love. I was so out of my depth. I, I put my hand up and go, I and how was long not did this, the right person. How long did this palaver last for before you went, Until what she, am I doing? No, it was more It was more her saying, what are you doing? <laughs> you looking after Courtney Love. I, I, that, there's a documentary oh in that. Oh, my God. There's a reality I TV show in that, Jane. I can laugh about it now. I can laugh about it now. But I would have, I would have paid for the TV show production myself. You... Looking after Courtney Love. My God. There was a moment oh. where I just started crying. We shared a house together, which I had to find. You shared a house as we well? We shared a house together in Triple Elmscourt. danger money. Oh, my goodness. I won't talk about half the stuff that happened oh. in that house because I think half of them were caused by me. Yeah, I'm sure. This is, the, this is getting funnier by the second. <laughs> oh, God. 
You but, looking um, after Courtney Love, living together in London. In a, ho- in a, in a, a, a three-storey townhouse in Earl's Court, uh, no less. No, it was, oh, <laughs> it's like the script's writing itself before my very eyes. I'm just grateful she didn't get me to sign a non-disclosure Oh, right, agreement. of course. So I will talk about it in more depth another time, but the, you know what Americans Was it like? fun, at least? Was or, it fun? Or, or was, it, was, it, was it a chore? Because oh. PA work, you know, not that I've been a PA, <laughs> but I've seen what PAs do. I've, I've worked with artists who have their own PAs. It's a, it can be a thankless task, particularly with someone like Courtney Love, yeah, I'd imagine. Yeah, especially the I'd day imagine. that I had to ring up this guy. She gave me the number. She gave me the name and this number of a guy. <laughs> And she said, just ask him if he likes Courtney, all right? That's all you have to ask. So ring up this guy. High school shit. <laughs> Seriously. Can you ring this guy and go, do you love Courtney? Okay, so you had to make a phone call on her behalf. I had to make a phone call on Courtney's behalf. And Here she said, Jane, <laughs> ring this guy and just ask him <laughs> if he likes Courtney. I went, okay. I had no idea who this guy was who I was calling, so I ring the number that she's given me. It's an American number. He answers. And I say, hi, I'm Jane. Uh, I'm just ringing on behalf of Courtney Love who wants to know if you like her or not. Who was it? And he says, yeah, sure, I like Court- Court- Courtney, yeah. Yeah, sure, you tell her. And That then sounds like gave- Midwest, Midwestern <laughs> accent. I'm just really bad at accents, yeah, right. Michael. Good, good. He gives me what to say to Courtney in return. So I write it all down. Mm-hmm. I finish the phone call. I go up to Courtney and I say, Courtney, Harvey Weinstein says, yes, he likes you a lot and thank you for the, thank you for the message. Harvey Weinstein. Are you serious? <laughs> you were speaking to Harvey Weinstein. I spoke to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> okay. Gob smacked. Gob Definitely smacked. Harvey Weinstein. I think she was looking for her next film role, potentially. Because she had know. done that movie with Woody Harrelson. She um, had done that already by, by what the time. What was that movie that called time. again? It escapes my mind. But the, Larry Flint. The People versus, versus Larry, Larry. Larry Flint. So Harvey Weinstein, he, he didn't produce that, obviously. But she wanted, she I'm wa- not sure. She wanted, she wanted to be in a movie. I'm guessing. God I'm really guessing here. Can you imagine that but meeting? But I remember Courtney meeting Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein. Can you imagine Weinstein. that meeting? Harvey and Courtney. <laughs> Don't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't even think about it. Oh, God. Courtney Love. Let's leave it there on Courtney because you can't top that story. You spoke to Harvey Weinstein on Courtney, Courtney's behalf. Uh, let's go to some hypotheticals, Jane, because I love hypotheticals. Are you ready for this? Sure. We spoke about radio before. Now, you can be as PC or un-PC as you like here. Okay. You're given the keys to the kingdom yes. at the ABC uh-huh. right now right. in 2023 yeah. and you're in charge of programming or whatever the case may be right up to 2024 and beyond. Mm-hmm. What do you do? And this I is not a loaded question. and I would change the playlists at both Triple J and Double J. And that why? would be and, my and, first and, and point of call. What would you do? What do you mean? What do you mean change? You mentioned earlier that when we broke artists in the nineties in Australia, mm. they had high rotation. That at that point meant seven to eight plays a, a day. day. Yes. yes. High rotation on Triple J now means about five plays a week. Yeah. 
Yeah. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. That's high rotation. Do you think because there's so much music at the moment and that they have no choice but to you know, spread, spread the Definitely love, so to speak? I think that's part of the problem. And also I know that they are going against streaming mm. services like Spotify yeah, and Apple course. Music and YouTube. So I believe that they think that their remit has to be large in order to satisfy so many listeners' palates perhaps. Yeah. However, what research is showing us is that kids are switching off. Radio in general. Triple J right. and going to commercial networks. Is that right? That's what the and then on latest top of that, radio research shows that's us. That's interesting, isn't it? On top of that, you have TikTok coming in. So people are discovering TikTok is becoming a real discovery, a proper discovery platform now, right? Now, pretending you're in charge of it. Mm. Do you obviously change the rotation, change mm. the sound? Do you change. I bring some big personalities. I was going to say, do you change the. It requires some big mm. personalities. It really does. Who are prepared to take risks? So take the like the UK example where they have uh, potentially artists on the air or yeah. actors. Yeah, or but artists on the air are only great in some circumstances. Mm. I would not, I would not do that all the time. All the time, yeah. I think I think you need people that just don't care. Yeah, and like it's, to an extent, it's like having comedians on mainstream radio, commercial yeah. radio. Yeah. It works because people need to lighten up their days and yeah. have, have a smile, have a laugh. Yeah. But Triple J is not meant to be, you know, it's meant to be a vehicle for new music, mm. really, right? Mm. And you don't think it's you don't think it is anymore. So it's, has it lost sight of what its intended purpose was? I don't think it's lost sight. I think I think it's just trying to be too much to too many too people. Many, yeah, I think I think too so many too. cooks, perhaps. Mm. I'm not sure. Uh, Double J, I thought was going to be more like BBC Six Music. I was really excited about Double J, but I just don't think it's there yet. I just don't think it's hit its stride yet. I think there's too much new music on it. There is, but can you imagine Double J, if it had its own slot on the dial, it would have much more impact. It's only on, on online, right? Mm. Imagine it having... It's a digital station. Digital station, yeah. but, I mean, if it was like on your dial, like yeah. in, whatever, in your car, even though you can get but digital... But I think, I think the music playlist needs to be sorted out. It's I too vast. I just think they're, too, they're trying... They're putting way too much new music on for an audience that, and you know, as, as far as I know, Double J is for the over 40s. It's yeah. for our people. It is. That it were is. around in the 90s. Yeah. But for me, there's not enough vintage and legacy music coming through on that station. It it seems heavily weighted towards new music, which is great for the Katie Steeles and the yeah. Josh Pikes who yeah. have got new music that there's yeah. an outlet for them because they can't go on Triple J anymore. I like that. But I also feel that it needs to honour the past right. as well. a lot more. A lot more. A lot more than it does. Okay, so let's talk about festivals. I ask everyone, mm-hmm. and I change a festival around, obviously. Um, you... You have given the keys to program yes. Glastonbury yep. next year. <laughs> Think about this, right? So you're going to pick the headliner sure. Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday, okay. and then a smattering of acts that you think are on the cusp of doing something yeah. with their careers. Yeah. It's a tough one that's because it's – a real tough one. It is because I, I, someone asked me the same question. That's why I'm asking the question of uh, all the interviewees on, on this podcast, but – I found it really hard to pinpoint. I think it's hard I could, to pinpoint I could probably, who is could, going to be on, who is on the cusp of their career. Yeah, I can choose the prop, the headliners. And you know why? It's because we don't develop artists the way we used to, Michael. There you go. 
there you go. The potential. Well, that's why nostalgia. Well, that's why nostalgia is so so big at the moment. Mm. You know, if you look at the artists that are coming out to Australia, bar bar, you know, a few like the, I'm talking major tours. Sure, it's nostalgic. Absolutely, Ma- McCartney. You know, McCartney, the Human League. Human League. Oh yeah. my God, the Human League. I want to see that. Flame actually. Dare. I want to see that. <laughs> So let's go. So Glastonbury 2024, uh-huh. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. Headliners. Friday night. Yep. Susie and the Banshees. Oh, cool. Saturday night. Yep. I would try and get the Smiths back together. Oh. I know there's only three out of four alive. Alive, but, but still. They'll, they'll get someone on, on base. That would be in Andy amazing. Place. I would, that would definitely be try and get. So if money wasn't an object and Morrissey wasn't <laughs> so Such, hated. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, hates himself more than anything. Jeez. You know, let's just forget that he's said some really poor things oh. in the press oh, and has. that he's a bigot. Um, so get the Smiths back together just to relive those oh, yeah, magical this, Smiths moments. Absolutely. And on the Sunday night, Kate Bush. Oh, that's a great one. Mm. Kate Bush. Mm. And Peter Gabriel comes on for a guest Absolutely spot. Absolutely, yep. Peter Gabriel comes on. Yeah. Don't give up. <laughs> <laughs> and then under, underneath, who are the underneath. two or three acts or oh, see, coming through that you'd love to see? You go, they've got something about oh, them. For Glastonbury, mm. all my favourite young bands are coming out of Geelong right now, which is really interesting because... Geelong. G-Troit. G-Troit. Yeah. Alan McGee once said to me, there's a musical revolution every 20 years, and he's right. Whatever is in the water in Geelong right now, is it's going to make... What are you talking about? What kind of bands? I'm talking about Good Sniff, Parakeet, there's a band called Sirens, and the fact that they are pouring money into their that, that area. arts, arts yeah. funding. Mm. Fiona... Duncan. Duncan yeah. from uh, Spiderbait Management. She's working there. Some great, great people working there. I say and watch Bonnie this Dalton, space. Bonnie Dalton from... Uh, uh, VMDO. Yeah, she's down there too. See, mm. I think watch this space, Geelong bands, but all my all all. I think those kids too have got they've got room to develop. I don't think they're under the pressure that perhaps city kids are under, or maybe maybe it's that beachy attitude. I don't know. I can't pinpoint it and say it's this reason, but. I say watch this space, but would they be big enough or better enough, good enough? For, for Glastonbury? For Glastonbury. See, underneath those artists, I'd put people like Bauhaus, Block Party, Placebo, Interpol. There you, there you go. Now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. There's a Double J playlist right there. It really is. But that's a good I love. I love the K-Push thing. God mm. almighty, that would be so cool to see. Yeah. And we talked about interviews earlier. If you could interview anyone mm. in the world... Mm. Past, mm. present, future, who would that person be? It would probably be Malcolm McLaren. Wow, who's since passed, of course. Who's since passed yeah, because yeah. his view of the world and his view of entrepreneurship and taking a band and blowing them up bigger than Ben-Hur, it's just remarkable. And a we're talking Sex Pistols here. Bengali, yeah. yeah. And he had something to do with Bow Wow Wow as well, didn't he? He did, yeah. Annabella Lewin. Yeah. In fact, Kate Sobrano's got a great story about her meeting Malcolm McLaren when she was 15 or 16 years old. She went over to London and she met with him. To audition for that, probably that role in Bow Wow Wow, I'd imagine. To, to audition for that role and he said to her, you are nothing special, Kate. I've already got you. I've got Annabella Lewin. I've already wow. got one of you. Be different. Be yourself. Wow. 
What advice to give? And was that be- that was pre I'm talking? I imagine, or around the same time? It was time? pre I'm talking. It was. Wow, Kate Sobrano. Yeah, I love Kate. Malcolm McLaren. He would have been great, actually. So many stories, and he, he had his own recording career too. He right? did. I loved Buffalo Girls Buffalo and Girl. Madam Butterfly. That Duck Rock record was like a- ahead of its time. Yeah, he went to New York and went. I need to get into this, you know. And isn't it funny? He went to New York the first time around, saw the New York Dolls, that, and went, "I'm going to take that back to, to London the UK. or to the UK." And the Ramones too, from memory. Yeah, the Ramones, New York Dolls. It was when punk rock, because people don't people think punk rock started with the Pistols. It started with the Ramones, if mm. you want to trace it back. Mm. And he would have gone to New York and seen the excitement of CBGBs at the time, and gone, "Hey, I c- we can do it better." Mm. And his wife, of course, was a um, Vivian Westwood, Vivian Westwood yeah. you know, who's since passed too, right? Yeah, yeah. So incredible fashion designer, and yeah. she had all the kids in the palm of her hand in, around that time, you know, Carnaby Street and all mm. that stuff. Okay, well, that's a good one. Um, okay, you're starting a brand new TV show, music-based TV show, uh-huh. based on your experience. Okay. What do you do? In two, and we and we and let's let's preface that by saying that we need one. We really do need one. I know. It's a missing. It's the missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle right now because we grew up with Countdown, right? And we grew up with Recovery. It was just. It was vital to to your up to to your musical upbringing, wasn't it? Mm. What do we What do we do if you? I don't care who the network is. Let's not even make it. You know, let's keep it network agnostic. Network agnostic. Let's, that's great. Right? Let's keep it network agnostic. If you, someone said, I want to start, here's a whole bunch of money, I want to start a brand new music-based TV show, what would it look like, Jane? And you're in charge. It will have Dylan and I hosting. There you go. Dylan Lewis and myself hosting. Yeah. And it would be live mm-hmm. and it would have every cool band that we love and every cool new band coming through. It would be a platform for great music. Time slot? Good question. Free to I wear think it's TV. Time slot agnostic. <laughs> Free to wear TV online? How do, do you know how, do you, how many how do we times I, it? do you know how many times I've been told the phrase music television does not rate? Do you know how always. many times I've to, been always. told that? Always. It, since the dawn of time. Oh my goodness. I'm sick of hearing that phrase. It doesn't rate. Channel 9 used to say that all the time. Doesn't rate, you know, doesn't rate. Channels, they all say it. Oh. Yeah, they all say it because it's, you know, they, they can have the voice and they can have idol and all that kind of stuff on there. Um, that rates because it's not about music. No. It's about the story behind, yes. you know, the contestant and the judges, of course. But yeah. So Dylan and I actually put together a show called Recovered. Yes. And we popped it on YouTube. We got our old uh, exec producer from Recovery, Bruce Kane. We. We filmed it in a caravan and we got a vintage caravan. That was our set. And we got some of the best artists of the day. We got Jessica Malboy and Henry Waggons and the Bennies and other various artists to come on. And then COVID hit and we couldn't afford to keep editing and filming the show. But if anyone would like to pick that up, it's that's idea. ready to go. But there is room for one, isn't there? Oh my god, we so need a show. Yeah, I think so too. It's yeah, it's my one bugbear about living in Australia is that we don't have a decent music television. We show. don't, we don't, and we should. It, it, it'll make a world of difference, I think. All right, Jane, let's get serious. Let's get serious about the state of Australian broadcasting in general. Mm. Tell me what you think has been the impact of social media on broadcasting as we as we know it, or as we knew it. 
because it has had an impact, right? Hence the reason why we don't have a TV show, mm. music-based TV show, mm. you know. Hence the reason why probably Triple J is the way it is. Has TikTok affected the way Triple J program? So it's, it's a big question and there's no right or wrong answer, but mm. has, you know, social media and has, you know, these new platforms, how has it impacted traditional broadcasting? Well, I have two children, 10 mm. and 6, and they do not watch free-to-air television. No. They could not name one free-to-air television show. They could when they were younger. Yeah. They watched Bluey and yeah, things like course. that. Yeah, of course. But they can watch Bluey on, on their iPad on, sure. on through sure. YouTube, right? So we have a generation of children growing up who don't give a shit about television mm. nor its impact or... And then radio, and by else. extension radio, I, and I imagine. And by extension radio. I keep the radio in the car on all the time. Of course. I think my son understands radio. He gets frustrated when the song ends quickly. If we've just switched on the radio and we're halfway through a song, he doesn't quite yet understand that we can't rewind it. So he gets it but he doesn't quite get it right? because he's growing up in streaming where you can just rewind the song again. And what's he partial to? A bit of rockabilly, I imagine? No. No. My kids love dance music. The beat. The beat. The yep. marshmallow and anything that's on YouTube that their influencers are watching. Yeah, right. See, they want to grow up and be gamers or YouTubers. Yeah, gaming's huge, isn't it? Gaming's gaming another, is huge. It's another vehicle for discovering new music too. Yeah. You know, if there was one platform that you couldn't live without and mm. you think the world couldn't live without or shouldn't live without, which mm. what's that platform? Radio. Right. Why? Radio paints pictures the way that television can't the way that Netflix and YouTube can't. And even though YouTube is a godsend for finding music videos from yesterday, Mm. I do love watching old music videos. I just think radio is integral to everything, everything. I cannot even begin to quantify. If I hadn't have come through radio just from the networking and learning about the art of interviewing artists and also getting behind new music and breaking bands, I just can't even begin to wonder how different my career would have been. Yeah, we're, we're lucky to have that, that that radio. When radio was a real powerful tool, radio we were very so lucky. Powerful. It's, it, it's kind of lost its not, – not lost its way, but it's a lost – it's a lost medium. It's a lost medium. And the I interview needs- is a lost art. Oh, absolutely. You know, listening to – like we were talking about Zane Lowe earlier, mm. like listening to great interviewers and learning – like for me, it was Stephen Walker from Triple R, mm. Bill Pinnell on mm. Triple M, who did the Yeldon Show. You'd learn they were my professors, yeah. You know, and you'd listen to them intently because they asked great questions and they had you know impeccable taste in music, even sure. though it was very different between both guys. Yeah, I would listen to them religiously, just find out about what was coming, what was coming out next. Yeah, do you don't have that anymore? Yeah, the DJ was king. Yeah, I think about some of those. British broadcasters like John Peel and Steve Lamack and Joe yeah, Wiley. Yeah, those guys, yeah. They set the template for people's... Well, game changers, weren't they? You know, had an impact on our culture. to their lives. Yeah, or yeah. impact on, on culture and impact yeah. on, on, on us personally, all those kinds of yeah. people. Yeah. It's gone, I think. Yeah. Not I gone, think, it just doesn't have the same... I think radio could rev- be revolutionised again, but I think, again, just the watered-down... Uh, content on community radio now. For example, I'm not going to name the station, but mm. I listen to a certain breakfast show. I dip in and out every mm. now and then just to see what they're doing. 
and I just bury my head in my hands because I can't believe that this is what they're feeding to people, to their listeners as breakfast radio. It is the most dull, boring, inane, inane crap ever and I just despair. And that's just the music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I hear you. Let's talk about the Me Too movement because mm-hmm. I think it's an important okay. subject to, yeah. to tackle and it, we haven't got enough hours in the day to, to, to discuss it at great length. But let's talk about that the move, that movement in particular and how it's impacted broadcasting in this country. Do you think it has? It's, it's, it's not a loaded question. It's, no. not a, it's not a trick question. No. But there has been, you know, like we're talking about pay parity, you know, wage parity. Oh, yeah. We talk about the, you know, the... the the impact of women on culture and giving people uh, women a more senior role in big organisations like the ABC, mm. you know, um, record companies seem to change or are starting to change. It's there is there is a push. There's definitely been a change. by women for, for women, sure, and 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 men who are sympathetic and empathetic to the cause. Yeah, has that impacted the industry? What I, what I can say is what, when like I what was it used coming, to be? Yeah. when I was coming through in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, managers used to pit women against each other. Right. So there was no camaraderie between women coming through in the That's 90s. interesting. And I can tell you every every worst moment that I had in my broadcasting career was generally caused by another woman. Is that right? Oh, I had some shockers, I can tell you. I never had any problems with men growing up, thank God, touch wood. Mm. And as far as me too, I was never inappropriately touched or ever yeah. really you know all the, course, all that thing all that stuff that we hear about mm. um thank goodness but yeah all the trouble came from other women because we were competitive and i think that was just the psyche of the of the 90s and possibly even up to about 2005 2010 right. i remember going to london and when i started at xfm the only problems I had were, again, were with women in the office. Mm. They had a problem with me and we just couldn't seem to iron it out. So that doesn't happen now, thank goodness. Was that oh. men men pulling the puppet strings there? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I think I think they enjoyed the show, right. really. Yeah. And I was too Let's young. Let's set a cat amongst the pigeons, so yeah, to speak. To, I, I was Australian. I was mouthy. I said what I, what I felt and that was probably to my detriment because yeah. in England – the idea was to shut up and say nothing or stiff up a lip or right. don't talk about the world. Don't rock the boat. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But I did. And so I think that But was... we need that, don't we, Jane? We need people, we need particularly women questioning and continuing to question, you know, in these in, in whatever position of power that, that mm. they may have mm. to pave the way for other women to come through mm. in this business, right? I've just made it my life's mission now to mentor young women. That's great. That's mm. all I can do. I can't really comment on pay disparate yeah, pay disparity. parity. Yeah. I can't really comment on other stuff because thank thankfully it's never happened to me. That's good. But what I can say is I've just made it my life's mission to look after young women. I have a lot of uh, singer-songwriters contact me asking me for advice. I get a lot of uh, budding broadcasters wanting info about music journalism or broadcasting, and I'm really, really, really happy to uh, help them out. Mm. In fact, I went to I went to um, uh, Mona, Mona yep, yeah, in Tassie. Tasmania, yep. and I had to interview an artist down there and the woman that was in charge of 
shepherding the artist actually said to me, I wrote to you when I was 17 and you wrote to me back and you gave me such good advice and thank you so oh, much wow. for that. Oh, wow, full circle. That means so yeah, much. Yeah, and there yeah. she was being an artist liaison. So wow. full circle. Yeah. And do you think the government, both federally and on a state-by-state basis, are doing enough to, to help women in, in broadcasting, in, in, in music, in, in the arts? I think they just need to spend money in the arts yeah, and the women will come. Mm. The women and the the minority groups, I just think we need to spend money full stop. Yeah. And I believe everything else will open will up. flow, yeah. Yeah. And you feel like there's a, it's a case of us versus them anymore or, or was there a case where you felt threatened by male power, if that's the right I never really felt threatened by male power, but I certainly was was belittled by mm. some of the big, big key players. But they're a dying breed now. They are. The dinosaurs they really are a dying are really, breed. Really dying. And the new breed, they're okay. Mm. They're fine. I think they get it. They're listening. I think. They've got to listen because I don't think women are standing for it anymore. Yeah, that's right. The facts, I mean, look what happened at Sony recently. Yes, yes. That was a case a of long time, women long time coming. really speaking out and going, we've had enough. Yeah, time, time for change. And more recently I did an article for Rolling Stone where I spoke to three women who had prominent careers in the 90s who were basically told to shut up and deal with whatever was going on Mm. because, again, if they spoke up at that point in their career, they were painted as difficult women, they were painted as divas and people didn't want to work with them because they weren't compliant. But they ruined their careers over it. By by staying silent? By staying silent. That's a a travesty. And that is a travesty. And... I think that's so out of line. So I say speak up. Speak up. That's good. That's great advice for anyone really, but particularly for women these days. Speak up, speak your mind. You know, you're not going to be chastised for it anymore. Well, you can be. You still can be. I, I, I think that's Cancel cha- culture is still right, it's, Michael. Yeah, let's, it is. It let's, is. It is. To, ver- mean, to varying degrees. If you have a different opinion from everybody else. To varying degrees. Yeah, you're right. You get cancelled. Yeah, you do. You get cancelled. Yeah. If You've got to be very, very careful. You've got to be very careful. Okay, so let's round it off because we've been talking for two hours now. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go back to a question that I was going to start with, mm. but I'm going to cap off the interview with this question because yeah. I think it's I love asking this question of everyone that I'm, that I'm speaking to. Tell me a couple, one or two cultural events yeah. that change your life. Yeah, change your life where okay. you went, wow, this is my purpose. This is the reason for being. Countdown on a Sunday yep. evening. That was my life's purpose. Sounds as soon with as Donnie you saw Sutherland. that show. Oh, sounds with sounds Donnie with Donny Sutherland on a Saturday morning. That was my life's purpose. Mm. That was those two shows changed the your making life. of me. Yeah, I don't think I would be in the industry I am if it wasn't for Molly Meldrum making the art form of interviewing rock stars and making out that he was the best friends ever with them. That was so funny, wasn't that? If if it wasn't. For Countdown. Molly. And he would get away with it. He would, you know, like I remember him being drunk most of the time in those. I used to go to Countdown a See, lot. See, as a child watching, I had no idea you, we he had was no, drunk. We had no concept, you know. <laughs> He'd rock up with no sleep, you know. So good. So Countdown, Donny Sutherland. Yes. Those, those two. That's the first one. Culture Club coming to Australia in 1984. The first time. Because that was the f- – I loved ABBA and I loved Kiss. You would have been a baby. I was a baby. Yeah. I loved them. Even then I knew. But Culture Club was 
my reason for being. Well, so, they were so unique, weren't they? They were so unique. There was something about Boy George for me that I connected with on so many levels. I think the fact that he was a gender bender. Yeah. He was neither female nor male. That's right. He was in the middle, wasn't he? You didn't know what he was. Something that I just connected with that. And I just loved him and so the, much. And, and, and a great pop writer, great, great, pop, pop, great writer, pop songs. But also a pop star, proper, proper pop star. star. Did you end up meeting him years later? Oh, my God, did I what? Go on. Well, funnily enough, I was working at Triple R and he had come out for a DJ gig and I think it was Warner's that were bringing them out. Maybe more yeah, actually. It was bringing him out. And I was at Triple R at the time and the biggest culture club fan ever, but Boy George was kind of old hat at that point. He wasn't – he hadn't risen and to Euro status. And this was post-prison? Post-prison, post-drugs. Yeah, 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 And I think Stephen Walker got the invite to say, would someone at Triple R like to interview Boy George? Yes. And by the way, I have so much to – I have so much owing to the late Stephen Walker for my oh, radio Stephen. career yeah, yeah. because he saw something in me that I didn't even see in me. Yeah, Stephen, was a, he was a professor. And yeah. he got so much shit from so many people for for promoting me really? to the Sunday afternoon slot. Because oh, that was God. a coveted slot, wasn't it? It was a coveted slot yeah, and yeah. there were other women presenters that felt that they had been there longer and deserved that slot. Who's this Calamity Jane? And I was just yeah. this young whippersnapper. Yeah. <laughs> and he got so much shit. And he told me he got so much shit. This was years later, of course. And I remember being bailed up in a triple R boardroom by a female volunteer saying, I can't believe you got that slot that he gave that to you. That's so shit. I've been here longer than you. Oh, I was 18 at the time, Michael. Professional. I yeah, professional came jealousy. out of there I, you know, crying. crying, shaken. Well, where's she now, I ask. Yeah, where's <laughs> but she? But Stephen saw something in me and I'm forever grateful to him. And he gave you, you got the he interview me, with, with Boy George as well? And he got me an interview with Boy George. And so I remember being in the elevator with the Warners rep and she said to me, so, do you know much about Boy George <laughs> then? And I went, oh, my God. Where do I start? Do I, do I, should I have brought my six scrapbooks that I just collected? <laughs> uh, he was lovely. And then years later, he was absolutely brilliant. And then years later, I would... Be drinking with him at the Met Bar, um, yeah. In London. In London. Yeah. The he's Met he's, Bar he's still around. He's still doing his he's thing. He's brilliant. He's coming back. They're coming back, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, they're coming them? back to play. You going? Yeah. Dressed up as Boy George? I, I can see it. I won the Boy George lookalike competition at Heidelberg Shopping Centre some reason, when I was 10 years old. For some reason, I can see you dressed as Boy George. <laughs> I can. Because you were colourful, you know, back in those chasers days, let alone, you know, going yeah, to see so Boy Culture George. Club, it's Countdown. There you go. Culture Club Countdown and, and Donny Sutherland. And probably, well, music shows. Yeah, so yeah. Culture Club Countdown and the third thing that shaped my mm. life was probably Band-Aid. Feed the World. Feed the World. That was huge. It was phenomenal. We stayed up all night, didn't we? We, we stayed, stayed up, up all, all night. night. And it was very it was very emotional. I remember crying. Yeah. You know, when Queen did their thing and yeah. I was like, I'm not I'm not a Queen fan. Yeah. When I say I'm not a Queen fan, I, I you know, I didn't rush out and buy a Queen record back in the day, but when I saw the the impact that Queen had in that crowd at Wembley, I was like, what is going on here? I'd never yeah. seen anything quite like it, you yeah. know? That I was a massive moment. Knew I had to work in the music industry. I wanted to be part of that that made change. Yeah, that was a massive show. That impacted the entire globe. Mm. It was everywhere. That was amazing. Anyway, Jane, I think we've had enough. We've been here for two <laughs> hours, right? Two hours. And we could go on for another hour because there's heaps of there's stories. There are so many stories. But thanks so much for, for Thank joining you, us. Thank you, Michael. And we'll see you soon. Bye. Maybe a culture club. <laughs>